Arteta! What a was a dogged effort, and at times it didn't look like it was going to happen, but eventually the Arsenal players pulled through and overcame their manager. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. That's the tone. I'm setting the tone. That's how it's going to be. Let's face it. This is not the Arsenal Vision Pollyanna podcast. It's the Arsenal Vision podcast post-match podcast podcast podcast. Anyway, uh, now that I've hit myself in the head and got that cleared up. Look, uh, we will celebrate the victory because it was a victory and it is big in the context of the other results. So that leads me to housekeeping because of the other results and because Arsenal did get a victory. Guess what you're getting this week? Uh, if you'd like to sign up for Patreon, which is still the best deal in the business. Um, yeah, you're getting a, a Schadenfreude podcast Woo-hoo! because, uh, yeah, that's right, Paul. We're doing it. Schadenfreude. You know, because look, when you have the opportunity, when Spurs lose, when Liverpool, uh, no, not them, Chelsea lose, when United lose, quite hilariously, um, when Barcelona lose to Granada, I mean, let's throw them in there. You have to do a Schadenfreude podcast, and so we will, and that'll be out in a day. So uh, if you want to sign up for Patreon, we'd love to have you there, and we'd love to have you on that podcast. We'll also have a fantasy Premier League podcast coming out as well, for those of you who care about that. Uh, Over at The Athletic, lots of new great articles. I I find that, like, basically, that's the only place I go to read about football anymore. And if you'd like to do it, we'd love to give it to you for a month free to see if you like it and then give you half off. So like two fifty a month uh, and you help the pod. And that's how we get all the great guests we've had already. Michael Cox on, Amy Lawrence on, James McNicholas on. And uh, we're lining up some even uh, even more fun stuff. I mean, not more fun than them. They're the best, but obviously the next ones will be even better than them. Uh, so yeah, help the pod. Ars- uh, go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. And uh, yeah, you're done. See, I listen to podcasts at 1.5x speed. And so I try to talk at that speed and that's not always the best solution. Paul's here. You can find him on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Hello, pause. Mm-hmm. Clive's here. You can find him on Twitter. At Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Tim's here. You can find him on Twitter. at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Scott should just about be settled into Reno into his new life, so he will be joining us again soon sometime in the future, but this is a pretty pretty full boat or pretty pull boat, whichever you prefer. Uh, and we're going to dive right into it. So, Tim, I, just a quick question about the manager before we get into any of this. Uh, I just want to get mm. like a quick, you know, either or, multi- multiple choice question, very simple. Is Unai Emery a bad coach or is Unai Emery the worst coach? Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm going to try to do this in a way that is not hysterically... Uh, depressing and and purely pessimistic because we did win the game and we did it in exciting fashion. There'll be a lot to get to about that. But, you know, I have to admit, I saw the lineup, and apart from the fact that Granite Shaka, his name is written in pen, I joked on Twitter that uh, Emery didn't have time to celebrate the victory. He was busy writing Shaka's name into the team sheet for Old Trafford. But, like, aside from that, I like the lineup. You look at it, you say, this is good, should be able to put Villa under pressure, and yet... You watch the team play, and the two things that just continue to stand out for me are the lack of numbers committed to the attack and the lack of intensity off the ball that makes us easy to play against. It's been the absolute story of the season. It was again in the beginning of this game. So I'm curious to get your take. Were you pleased when you saw who he picked? I thought it took some courage to pick Saka, and he certainly earned Mm it. Um, What is it about a team that looks on paper like it should be able to demolish a team like Villa but cannot, cannot pressure them into submission yeah it, it almost feels like um emma is kind of fighting the two sides of his nature because i feel like what he does is he quite often puts out these quite attacking enterprising lineups he did it at watford 
But then I don't know if there's just something in him that thinks, oh, I've put out like quite a few attackers here, so maybe I maybe I need to maybe I need to tweak a little bit just like what they do. And when you start tweaking what they do, it just kind of removes the point of having them in the first place. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting with our midfield at the moment, isn't it? Because you don't really get the sense that they're supporting the attack, but they're not supporting the defence either. Um, and and they really are, you know, like um, I, I see it so clearly from where I sit. I mean, so where I sit at the Emirates, if the camera was on the other side of the pitch, it would be in my seat, basically. Um, so I've quite a good view of what's going on from up there. And just the, the space in that midfield is just cavernous. And um, I, I really think that's the root of all our problems at the moment. And I, as much as I... I never kind of thought that Louise and Socrates seems like a particularly like complimentary centre-back uh, pairing. I, I, I kind of feel sorry for them at the moment because I feel like all the analysis is, oh, LOL, Arsenal's defenders are crap again. And it's like, how many defenders have to get fucking burned playing for Arsenal before, you know, start looking at other things? And like, I was just looking at the midfield and they're just like all over the place. And like, Granite Xhaka is like, pressing up quite a lot and like looks like he's trying to close players down high up the pitch, which I'm not sure I understand. And it, it, it just made me think of um, Steve Morrison, the uh, ex Millwall Norwich player did, did a really good uh, podcast recently with TIFO football. Um, Clive, I know you listened to it and he talked about sometimes like the frustration with criticism because uh, fans and pundits don't know what, players are being asked to do by their managers and he was basically saying look players will always do what their managers tell them unless they're like so big that they don't have to because you know it's like any other job you want to stay in the lineup so you do what you're told but um i i can't i just can't work out what that midfield's being told because they all seem to be doing different things um there doesn't really seem to be like any kind of structure it's not like I can't put my finger on something they're trying to do and failing. You know, it's not like I feel like, oh, they're being asked to do this. They're just not doing it very well. It's it's just a bit like I, d- I don't really get it. Can I um, add something, Tim? Yeah, go for it. So uh, um, Emery said a couple of times recently about players pushing up to kind of press higher up the pitch. Mm, like and Terrera. you see it. Yeah, like Torreira. But you also see it frequently with Chaka, not like in the run of play, but right from the kickoff, uh, something will happen and he'll push up and he'll be like on the edge of the box pushing up and he might be the central player. And I just, because I agree with everything you say, nothing really makes sense. And this isn't, this doesn't resolve the issue or, or, or make it a good plan. But you see every one of them pushing high up at times yeah. when it, they clearly think that's the instruction. And you see the, like you say, this cavern, this gap behind them. Yeah, I, I, I would just fact, say, by the way, Paul, uh, I, I think you said something really prescient there that has to be called out, uh, something really insightful. Nothing makes sense because that, to mm-hmm. me, sums up, sums it all up. That sums it all up, so, as the famous saying goes. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. 
I, I think like in I, I wrote something about this today, so I won't go into like massive detail about it. But I, I think what Emery is trying to do is turn us into more of a transition side. And I think getting Pepe, he's probably, you know, and, and there's some there's a fair amount of logic to the idea, you know, right. We've got Pepe. How did he score most of his goals last season while well, he scored them like transition counter? We've also got a Bamiang up there. Good, strong transition counter player. Um, Sabios is, is generally quite good at forcing turnovers. He's talking about playing Torreira higher up. Like I, I think all of that kind of sounds fair enough. And if you look at most of our goals this season, they have been transition goals. They have been kind of forcing turnovers, whether that's deliberate or whether that's just because Arsenal games at the moment are constantly in transition is probably open to debate. But I, I think... I don't know, obviously. I think that's what's going on. I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to turn us into more of a turnover team. But in doing so, the balance is way out of whack because we're just completely surrendering control. Yeah, I, look, I have to say that I think it's a mess. And I, I think he's he's caught trying to balance, straddle the fence a little bit here now. And, and we don't press, not coordinatedly. Like, I can't tell you how many times this game I saw one player step up to press and there's no other players doing it. So the minute he gets bypassed, there's tons of space behind him. And it reminds me a little of when we use Coughlin as a more uh, advanced midfielder. And he'd be like a one-man press, but you can't press with one man. So we'd race forward, get bypassed, and then there'd be acres of space to run in behind. And, and I think that there's a lot of freelancing going on with pressing in the midfield. And I don't know if that's because it's not being taught in a coordinated way or he's being told not to do it in a coordinated way. I mean, Shaka had some really hilarious-looking pressing moments in this game where he like kind of faked like he was running towards the ball and then just veered off into the sunset and ran away. Um, But we're also not committing players to the attack. I can't tell you how many times in this game as I watched it, Pepe would have the ball at his foot, right, you know, right wing, right channel, right half space, whatever you want to call it. Um, Those are three different things to be fair. Uh, And, there's two players in attack or one player in attack and and nobody giving him the other option. We missed that sort of Ramsey run uh, to, to make up another option for him to give it to. And so he'd cut in on that foot and then take a contested shot. Clive, I mean, we have to make sense of the structure before we can make sense of anything else. And I think there's some individual performances that need to be called out as well. But I wonder if some of the problem here is that he's also hiding the weakness at fullback, that maybe he's not committing them forward as much as he might ordinarily because they're a liability and we're getting killed down the flanks. And so he's reacting to that because I thought Kolasinac and Maitland-Niles were both diabolical in this game and they're both just very mediocre players at the position they're playing. I mean, Maitland-Niles has very clearly come out and said he's not a defender, doesn't want to be a defender, doing his best. This is where he, he doesn't see himself playing and he's playing like it. So, I mean, do you worry that maybe some of the structural issues start with the fullback or or is it something else? Nope. Uh, I think Maitland Niles was diabolical. For the first time, I looked at him and thought, you don't want to play here, mate, do you? You actually don't want to be a fullback. You're going to show everybody that you're okay going forward, but going backwards, you're going to jog it out. And I felt he sulked through the game. So not not a great performance from him. Uh, Kalashnik, I thought, was 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 fine. I think um, we know what he isn't, and he's not a great fullback in the back four. And maybe losing Monreal and, and Koscielny has destabilised the back line more than we actually recognise. So that's the back line. But let me tell you what's going on in midfield. Um the reason why there's a cavernous space in midfield is the distances. 
the distances are, are just not right. We've picked a team with three players that all want the ball, but we give them a space that actually makes them play off the ball. When we lose it, because where we're losing the ball a lot is actually is, is in the top third. Our accuracy and technical security in the top third is forcing a transition game. And then we have three players that focus primarily on making space to get on the ball, but don't actually think about their defensive distances if we were to lose it. And they literally go where they like. So the problem is, is that, I said this last week, is that Emery's not recognising the players that he has. When you coach, there are there's a philosophy that the, at the FA. It's called the four corners, right? And the four corners of coaching is physical, technical, social, and psychological. The psychological profile of Sobias, Guendouzi and Shaka do, does not complement each other. Sabayas is a give-it-to-me player, get on the ball, doesn't care where he stands. Guendouzi, similar, not quite as bad. And Shaka is red adair. He goes and his role, he feels, is to put out fires. So if he's not putting out fires with war, he's carrying a can of petrol and he's throwing that on the situation and he's making it a lot worse. The psychological profile of those three players do not mix and they do not offer any sort of defensive distances, compactness, which make you feel as though the middle is secure. So not only front to back are we is a distance too big in my opinion i would have a, a much tighter system more compact front to back and that's my david Luiz thing but i don't think it's just him i think it's the fear of conceding that's forcing us to collapse closer to our goal and not just our defenders but our center midfielders also the psychological profile of the players is not creating the distances there so you compare the profile of a of a terrera and a willock that want to be in the middle, want to press. And I'm going to add another name in there that actually that could play in there quite easily in Callan Chambers, who has done that role. His profile is to protect. So when you walk on the pitch, you go onto the pitch with the primary role in your mind. And I feel the three players that we selected yesterday, their primary role is, let me get on the ball and pass it. They're not thinking about transition. Three phases of the game. In possession, out possession, transition. The game is won on transition today. Everyone is looking for it because that's when you're most disorganised. And Arsenal are focused too much on the ball and they are looking shocking off the ball. They have the most non-running midfield three. Mm. You've, got three you've got three joggers there. You can only afford one. In this, in this modern age, unless you're going to control possession, you can only afford one against top teams, you might get away with two, but you can't have three joggers. You just can't have three joggers because there's no defensive intensity, no defensive distances. If you pick three joggers, you just squeeze the space. You can't have a big space and pick three joggers. This is my issue with the coach. Know your players, create a system where they can play and do well. If you're going to make the pitch big like Spurs do, then pick runners and win the races. Villa has three players in McGinn, Grealish, and Marvellous. And Marvellous ran us ragged, right? He literally ran us ragged. McGinn and Grealish are good players, by the way. And they found the third player there now that's really going to make Villa decent in centre mid. Every team is playing three in, and every team is looking at our three and saying, I don't care what name's on the back of their shirt, we can run them. And we've been, come on, lads, we've been talking about this for about two years now. Athletically, we are not up to it. 
So if we keep picking these types of players and buying these types of players in multiple occurrences of, the same thing is going to happen until we change the profile of sentiment we're going to have, change the distances by which we're going to play. And, be, and if we are going to be a transition team, then let's commit to it and get much more aggressive about where we engage how we engage people, and how we can create transitions. We can't just wait till we're two goals down and we have to be absolutely ferocious and desperate to then start pressing the ball like we did at Spurs. And then obviously against Villa, we went one goal better and actually won the game, which we should have done at Spurs. And by the way, Tim will tell you, this is quite similar, maybe not a spectacular, to a lot of games last year in the 22-game run. And there's something that Emery has created a trend of, and that is throwing away halves of football. And I've never seen that being done so much by the same coach. Throwing away halves. Last year, we found it quite exciting because it was new. This year, there's no credit in the bank and we're not finding it exciting. We're finding it tiresome, yeah. nerve-wracking. There's no credit. The half type, the substitutions Emery made in this game were brilliant. But no one's saying it. Last year, we were saying it. This year, we're saying, by now... You should know mm. more than what you know, right? Yeah. You should know more than what you know, and you should be giving us a far easier time against a promoted team at home than the stressful, high blood pressure day we had on Sunday. Yeah, I, look, there's a lot there, and I think I think he throws away halves of games, especially the first half, because he feels like, let's manage our way through this and stay close and I trust that I've got enough talent up front that someone will magic a goal, which Aubameyang or Lacazette usually does. And when we magic a goal, maybe we'll magic a win. And, like, that's just not football. And I'm sorry, but, like, there are so many attacks where there's three players in the attacking half, and the midfield is walking around and getting bypassed. To your point, I think absolutely we are short of a runner in midfield and someone who understands how to cover that space when the ball is lost. But you know what? The club bought you Torreira. Maybe he's not what you exactly wanted there, Unai. Maybe that's not the physical profile you prefer, but they bought him for you to fill that role. And granted, Shaka can't do it, and you keep picking him. him. So yeah. use him. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. and if it doesn't work, that's on the club. They bought you the wrong player. But it's on you if you're not going to try it. And that that is something that I think is a real worry. And look, Paul, I, I think we have to talk about the fullbacks. I, I think Unai Emery's football is just... A mess right now because it is it is not attacking enough to take advantage of the qualities we have up front. It's not pressing the ball enough to protect our back four. We've been saying this for weeks now on the pod. The best way to defend is to not defend, is to keep the other team in their half, to keep pressure on them, to hold possession, to pin them back. We don't do that, and we're neither here nor there. We're defending deep when we don't have the ball, and we're attacking without enough numbers when we do have it until late in this game, which we'll come on to. But I think a big, big problem we're having right now is that we have two fullbacks who are really, really struggling. I thought Kolasinac will fly under the radar, but was terrible in this game. And I think Maitland-Niles was worse, which is the only reason that Kolasinac isn't coming in for more criticism. I think it's interesting that in a week when Maitland-Niles said, I'm a winger, I want to be a wide midfielder or a winger, he has the first chance of the game within one minute and shows no composure on the ball. And a couple minutes later, he gets the ball sprayed out to him wide, overlapping Pepe, and takes a touch so heavy that it bounces five yards out in a touch. Like, I, I think if you want to prove you're a winger, then, you know, if you're not doing the defending part right, you got to do that. Then for their first goal, Guendouzi deserves credit. Uh, I mean, uh, criticism for not tracking the runner. The, the center backs are, are too split. They need to get tighter. But that cross should be cut out. 
it's not that hard. But he's he's just not switched on, and he doesn't get in the face of that passer. And we allow too many balls to be played under no pressure in our attacking third. So, you know, I, I think Clive added a lot of really interesting and important insight. But I do want to focus on the, on the struggle of the fullbacks because I think this is an area that's causing us a lot of problems. And I'm curious to get your take on whether you see you see it similarly. So there's a lot in there. I think, like the bottom line is the coach because I do agree with Tim's point. A lot of the players we're frustrated with must be doing pretty much what the coach has asked them to do. When we see Chaka vacating the middle of the park and he does it so often, that's an Emery issue because he's, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, apparently, Emery's fine with that because, you know, he keeps picking them and, and, and Chaka plays with a certain intent. I think... Maitland-Niles not closing down crosses is something that has been uh, a consistent theme no matter who the fullbacks are for most of Emery's tenure here. I mean, we saw the most extreme cases against Liverpool, but the extreme case can tell you about the coach's tolerance um, for how he wants the team set up. We've seen a lot less extreme examples where the customer's value or where the... uh, I mean, I'm in my work, in work environment. Mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when uh, we have valued uh, a a solid, uh, compact core in the defensive area, um, I think it's because the 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 manager has lost the ability to coach this particular set of players. Maybe these these players are just a puzzle he can't solve. He's okay at jigsaws, but he's no good at the Rubik's Cube. He doesn't know how to work with these players. Um, I think it, I think we're a little harsh on Maitland-Niles when we say he had a chance in the first half to, to bury one from a great position. I think a few players had that. Um, these, these things, if you look at the XG on it, it is not 50% or anything like it. Though, you know, these, that happens. Um, I think Generally, he's pretty good going forward. I think he's in a bit of a funk at the moment. Uh, uh, Beyond all the conspiracy theories of of what he's really trying to tell us, I just don't think... I think he sees all the criticism of the team and himself defensively, and he's just... He's taken pelters on social media. I mean, he's that age. He's going to be on social media. He's, He's seeing it in the media. And he's just saying, hey, guys, go easy on me. I'm not a fullback. The, the issue for Emery with Kolasinac and Maitland-Niles is it's not going to be resolved just because Tierney and uh, Bellerin come back. They can't, they, they're not going to arrive in two weeks' time and play every game for the rest of the season. Um, the, the midfield issue, if we think that magically Torreira is going to plop in there and we're going to be fine, we're not. And if we think that the answer is holding and Chambers mixing and matching with one or two of um, Luis and Kolasinac. I mean, I'm not going to give you a tactical answer, but I think none of us would bet our mortgage that there's any easy answer here. Even if you like Torreira at DM, and we all do, I don't think that's going to fix our midfield because Chaka was under instructions. It's, It's not all Chaka. A lot of it's Emery. I think Chaka can be a better DM than he's showing us to be at the moment, even if everybody, w- every one of us would vote for Terrer in the centre. And I think I- in the same way we've, we've seen that the front three p- 
almost picking itself, though. Saka does really mix things up interestingly. Um, We almost need some degrees of freedom taken away from the manager. I've never been a big advocate of going to the back three in the past for us. Um, But we are ideally suited with David Luiz in the middle um, to having a back three, given that Maitland-Niles and Kolasinac are fullbacks you don't want anywhere near your penalty box if you don't need them there. So get them up as wing backs and we're not going to be able to play Bellerin and Tierney uh, game after game. Plus they will both be excellent wing backs. We need to go back to making a, a, a strength, a virtue out of our weaknesses and give some solidity to the midfield. If he's going to pick Chaka or pick him a lot, then let's put three centre-backs behind them. I know it didn't solve all our problems last year or anything like it. Um, and it gives us all sorts of options and allows us to be a little bit uh, counter-attacking and should suit Pepe. And why I didn't really like it uh, as a solution last year, um, I think this he needs to... If he's not going to change, if we're going to be stuck with him for a while, if he's going to keep making the, chase, the choices he makes in terms of personnel... And we're going to have our issues with wing backs and full backs. Um, I just don't see any answer to this without mm. an enforced answer for him it's, in the back like he has in the front. The team reflects the ideology of its manager. I'm sorry, this isn't fucking rocket science. At some level, we had 14 shots to their two in the last 25 minutes of this game. And you can say, oh, it's game state. It's not game state. We put everybody in their half and they couldn't get out and we pinned them back and we caused them problems and we created pressure and we eventually overwhelmed them. And that's what big clubs do to small clubs routinely, especially at home. Prior to that, we were outshot by Villa, outshot by Villa at home. Six shots. Six shots before we put on that onslaught late in the game. That is a that is a tactical decision by the manager to balance attack and defense, to balance how your resources are being spread across the pitch. Go back and watch the game again. Watch the ball at Pepe's feet, looking up, beating a man. Who's in front of him? Nobody. Nobody. Who's making the secondary run into the box? Nobody. Tim, I do think that midfield is a big problem, and I think you had predicted uh, on a previous podcast that uh, Emery was getting ready to stop picking Shaka, uh, and I would like you to miracle that into existence, please, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer the opinion that that's happening. I want to talk about Shaka, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit about Ceballos. We tend to be kingmakers in on social media and in podcasts and things. When someone has a good game, we were guilty of doing it to Maitland-Niles after the first game and to Ceballos after the second. I think he's scuffling a bit. Um, I don't know if he totally understands the role that he's been given, but he doesn't look comfortable in the final third, making up the the extra attacker. You know, I, I don't know if he's really comfortable with that number 10 role that he's been given. And I think that this has been an Achilles heel for Unai Emery. He had Ramsey yeah. try to do it at the start of last season, didn't work, never got on with Mesut Ozil. He went to a back three to eliminate the need for a 10 altogether. At times he's played Lacazette almost like he's supposed to be the the 10, right? To, to drop in almost mm. like a false nine. This number 10 position for Emery has been a problem. Does he want it to be a pressing trigger? Does he want it to be a connector? And there's Mesut Ozil, rested in midweek, sat on the bench at home at the Emirates against a small team, a guy who knows how to connect, knows how to find pockets of space and, and link midfield to attack, and he's not chosen. Do you, do you blame, blame's a bad word. Do you put more responsibility on Ceballos and Willick, who's struggled there, and these players for not understanding the role? Or do you think that that role in his system is a blind spot for Emery? 
I think it's maybe a little bit of both. And he just, so what was the rumor we heard from the minute he walked through the door and we've heard it in pretty much every window, maybe bar this summer was ever Benega mm. was the player he wanted. And it, it might be that this is the only player in the world that understands what, what Emery actually wants from this. Has anyone position. asked him if he does? <laughs> he might not agree. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Emery spoke um, about playing Torreira higher up, you know, not necessarily as a number 10, although Torreira has played as a number 10 earlier in his career. That's how he started. Um, and and so I, I think it's it's probably a bit of a mismatch in terms of he just doesn't have the player he wants there. And maybe Ramsey was the closest, but, you know, not quite, um, you know, probably. Probably what he really wants is like, I don't know, like a Christian Eriksen figure who who can kind of do it all, who can do the press and everything like that, but also has the kind of creativity um, to, to kind of unlock defences. Um, I mean, I, I it's weird. I've, I've been reflecting on this for the last couple of weeks. Um, and in fact, I think I said in pre-season on some of these pods that I didn't think tactically that Ozil was finished in this team. And I still don't. And... I, I, I want to be careful about falling into a couple of traps. The first one is feeling, you know, feeling turning against Emery and therefore, you know, the kind of the conflicts he is in, be it personal or tactical, are automatically wrong. And therefore you must take the, you know, the other person's side because, um, you know, maybe so sorry to simplify that and put that in, in better language. You know, siding with Ozil now all of a sudden because perhaps I feel a little bit more down on Emery. I want to be careful about doing that because I don't want to pretend that last season I was campaigning for greater inclusion for Ozil because I, I kind of wasn't. And I think I get all of the reasons that Emery doesn't really want to use Ozil. And I do think Ozil has to take a lot of responsibility for that. And I think Ozil's slide started before Emery turned up as well. So I, I want to be a bit careful about doing that and I want to be a bit careful I, I completely agree with what Paul said there about look putting Lucas Torreira at the base of the midfield that that might help it's not going to solve all our problems overnight neither is Rob Holding neither are the fullbacks like I, I agree I think there's something a bit more profound going on here and it's not just a case of put that player in and it's all fine um, there's there's something else going on here but I, I, I kind of um, the, the piece I wrote for today like I kind of started writing it before the Villa game and actually my argument was going to be that um, one of Ozil or Sabayos should play which is kind of what I was talking about in the last pod just to give us a bit more of that control maybe Sabayos isn't the control player um, he's he's I think like Clive said more of the give me the ball give me the ball but he's not necessarily the foot on the ball guy He's more the kind of roadrunner, like, gimme, 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 I want the ball, I want to be involved, whereas perhaps Ozil is a bit closer to that, that kind of... He's more of an accelerator, isn't he, like Ramsey did. Yeah, yes, yeah, precisely, except he does it on the ball. Um, He's like a a ball carrier and a a bringer, um, whereas Ozil is is probably the only one that really fits that kind of... Again, he's not quite foot on the ball. Ozil's more... He he can control the tempo of a game through movement and he understands when to to slow it down, when to pick the pace up and things like that. But, um, you know, we we all know what Ozil's flaws are and just because he's been out the team for a long time doesn't mean they've gone away or that they're, they're kind of any less annoying or any less unhelpful. But... 
the other thing home I was kind villa? of reflect- yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And the other thing I was kind of reflecting on was like um, at the moment, you know, we're talking about Granite Xhaka and whether he has a place in this team at the moment. And it's it's kind of weird how a lot of the flaws Ozil has, you know, lack of intensity, lack of mobility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, they're present in Xhaka, um, and I get they're playing different positions, and he wants different things from those positions. But again, it comes back to the conversation you and I had earlier after the Frankfurt game. He seems to um, tolerate flaws and foibles in some players more than others, and. You know, I said after the Frankfurt game, I felt like he was rousing a sleeping dog with this Ozil thing that he was kind of bringing it up and kind of maybe bringing, stirring some of that bad feeling again, I thought quite unnecessarily. Um, And I do feel like he is just trying to make a point with a few players. Torreira's one of them, Ozil probably another. And um, I I do think that, um, I, I think everyone particularly in England has come to the uh, has kind of come to the acceptance of the whole like um, you know director of football model where Mm -hmm. players are kind of bought for the coach and things like that for a long long time people resisted that in England and actually again just because everybody has or most people have come round to it it doesn't mean that the kind of misgivings about it are any less relevant than they ever were and I think you get this a lot at the moment this kind of conflict where a lot of coaches, you know, they feel like they haven't bought the players. The players have kind of almost been foisted on them. And I think sometimes you get this little bit of kind of this little bit of conflicts, this little bit of, well, screw you. I'm going to make a point about this now. And um, you're seeing it with Zidane at the moment, for example. I know Real Madrid have had this model for a while and it's slightly different there. But he's kind of talking about not getting Pogba and it's all, oh, you've got to ask the club. You've got to ask the club about that. And that's a very pointed, like... Not my fault. I said, give me, give me, I want, and they didn't give me. Um, and I, I just sense, I don't know, I just sense there's a little bit of friction there. And I sense that he's kind of trying to make a point. And I did think when Willick and Torreira came on, and don't get me wrong, they were good substitutions. And if you're looking to force transitions, those are kind of the players I guess you want. But I, I did feel like he was making a point again. And... Um, yeah, it it still feels like a bit of a shadow. It still feels a little bit unhealthy. Yeah, nothing makes sense. I, I mean, that's really what it is to me. Like, Shaq is not playing well. We've got this guy, Torreira, who plays at the base for his national team and his last team. We don't use him. We have all these attacking players. We don't commit to attack. Uh, but somehow we're still terrible defensively. Like, just nothing makes sense. And Clive, I think, you know, look at the teams that are good. Look at Liverpool when we played them. What happens if you try to dribble out of your defensive third against Liverpool? You go right into a trap, and the ball's going right in your net. You can't. You can't get out. Get you, sma- you, you get smashed. Yeah, you, you either three, get smashed physically. By, yeah, You get smashed by three workman-like midfielders. Sure. And, and I mean, with us, and watch so, this game again. So it's quite yeah. interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. It's quite interesting. We talk about defense, but I think our commitment to it is not the same as what we talk about. Right? Because the players that we pick in that area are not the same type of players. I mean, you, you guys are sensible guys. You you watch Tobias running around like Daffy Duck in the centre midfield. right? He, he hasn't got the intensity. On the ball, he moves it intensely. 
but he's a tick attacker player. I want loads of touches. Give me the ball. Touch, 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 touch. We're not playing tick attacker small space football. We're playing big space football. And guess what? He's doing 30 yard doggies continuously, trying to run people that he just he's looking slow against. And so the situation's different. So we are heading towards a three up, three in, but the three in that we're choosing are not the right three. Right? And so that commitment to solidity that commitment to physical and tactical control, we're not quite committing to. And I think, you know, Shaka's part of the problem. I think if anything came out of Sunday, I think it was Gwenduzi saying to everybody, you better build this team around me because I'm your best bet. We all, well, I felt Shaka would be useful for this year. Maybe that was, I was um, overambitious, I thought it would take a year for um, Gwen Doozy to fully kick him out the door, but it's taken about six weeks, right? And um, and the game Sunday was a was a total message to everybody. The moment Shaka went off, that Gwen Doozy said, "I'm having this now. I'm taking over. Give it to me, and I'm going to drive. I'm going to pass. I'm going to move." And we're getting some clarity about things we suspected really, really quickly about certain players. And in adversity, we found out who was standing up and who this team belongs to. And I think it belongs to the centre-forward and the young centre-midfielder. Yeah. And I think they I think they showed it mm. and they told everybody what we're about. Well, let me ask you something. I, I mean, you know, we talk about this number 10 role being elusive for Emery. I think Genduzzi's mm. weakest moments are sometimes his defensive positioning. He 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 it's funny, right? He it's not that he's not athletic, but he's not quick, so he doesn't recover space super well. I love the way he plays when he gets closer to goal. He had a really good shot in yeah. this game. He won us a penalty. He's good at those short ball recoveries, right? Preventing teams from playing out. He seems to have an eye for getting into the space. In fact, when he won the penalty, he starts that by intercepting a pass and, and carrying it into their box. He has the ball. He sprays out to the wing for Chambers for the, the second goal we wind up scoring. Yep. Well, I mean, why can't he be more advanced? And then you can play Torreira and Ceballos together. Because Ceballos, I agree with you. Look, he needs players close to him. The reason he was so good against Burnley is the distance between him and his teammates was never more than two or three yards, and he loves playing that way. Yep. He's carrying That's the brilliant. ball five, ten yards of space in this game with nobody near him, having to make the passes that Shaka likes, the 20-yard you know, passes out to, to the wings. That's not Ceballos' game. So can't you put them at the pivot and let Genduzzi go do more creative stuff in the attacking third? Uh, well, Guendouzi's developed this. I mean, up until this season, I don't think he had an assist, if I might be right. Yeah. Um, now, But now he's assisting and now he's shooting. So we, we've got a player here that can play six, he can play eight, he can play ten. I mean, now, you know, I am big on him because I, I think he has things which are uncoachable, which are in between his ears. He is somebody that's got an unbelievable mentality for the game, and he's, he's very uh, much a, a young, arrogant Sesk-like. May not be quite as good yet, but he has that same persona, that same aura about him, that same nastiness, that same shithousery about him. He's got the same things, and the and I, I, I like players like that that say. You know, I'm not. I'm not having this situation. I'm. I'm. I'm taking over. And um, so I totally, Elliot. I totally agree. I, I think he should be. A, if you're going to say to somebody, be free. That he maybe he's the one. 
Meza Ozil is the one in our minds and he does some good things, but I don't think he's too way enough. But he's obviously, you know, I think he's um, maybe Sabayas showed us some limits in that position, but maybe Sabayas could play deeper and give us a little bit of technical control deeper. I think he works hard deeper. I think he finds extra yards defensively when he shouldn't. And when I first ever saw him playing for Betis, he was more of a six-type player. So uh, I was quite surprised how he developed over the next few years into a more of an 8-10. He was an 8-6, and I think that wouldn't be the worst thing for him in England to sit and look and dictate, because I think he lacks the sprinting speed once he's out of position. I think it may work to some of his weaknesses if we say stay here and help us build rather than be free because you're giving us no structure when you're free. You're not thinking smart. Right, so, um, but are we going to three and are we going to two and a one? I, I don't know, and none of us know because we keep changing. I think we need to focus on, you know, three in. But at the moment, while we're getting players back, I very much agree with Paul that we need to th- pick a system to get mm. the best out of our players returning to health. And I think the three at the back is what we, we could easily do. It doesn't affect our front three configuration. It just gives us a level of clarity in the wide spaces. And I think we are playing two wing-backs as full-backs, and then we're talking about them in a negative way when they are not full-backs. They are doing a job as full-backs. They're, they're wide midfielders, centre midfield on one side, and they are wing-backs on both sides and we are not allowing them to be what they are. We're not allowing our centre backs to be what they are. We're not allowing we're not we're asking Shaka to do things that which he's not comfortable with. We're now seeing the limits physically of Sabaya, so we're now killing him even though he, he had a statue after the first home game. And Torreira, we are we are just seeing him come back because he's only looked fit the last week or so. So I think his inclusion in Arsenal's midfield going forward is an absolute must because he brings a lot of the things that we don't have. And so that's where we are, Elliot. So mm. I, 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 little, I had a little thing to say. Just give me one more minute, man. A little thing today about where we are as a, as a squad. And we did take out a lot of players this year. And we all agreed with it. You know, well, particularly me, I really wanted to blow the whole lot up. So we let go of 18 players and half of them, we can't remember their names, right? So great. Half million quid off the wage bill. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well done, club. But then we added five or six, which we loaned one back. And of those players that come in, none of them are ready yet. You know, they're not here. You know, Pepe's only just, you know, had a, a, a semi-decent impact Sabias has had one game not really impactful. We got Tierney to come back and he looks very promising, but he's a way off from being promising. And so we've not added anything significant, but we've taken away stability from Monreal, Koscielny, and we've lost some power running in Iwobi and Mkhitaryan. And we're now replacing that with young players and players that are not up to speed. And so we ask ourselves, well, I ask myself, why do we keep doing this? And then I look back at the players and they're not here yet. They're not where they we want them to be. And so we are going to get a lot of the same. In some ways, we're at this moment in time, potentially we are way stronger, but at this moment in time, we're actually weaker. 
we're yeah. actually weaker from a playing perspective. Yeah, that's fair. And those options for Emery are not there. And so, and by the way, he would misuse them anyway at the moment because I think he's I think he's panicking a little bit. So, so that's where we are. And I think it's one it's something to think about. We're not here yet, but we could be really quickly if we get these players back to health and get them to adapt to the Premier League. And when they, when that happens, I'm hopeful we'll feel a bit more positive. Look, I, I mean, at the end of the day. I could not agree more that all of the players we signed in the summer still look like they're getting their legs collectively, and that's that's not helpful. And we're playing guys like Saka, who you know I thought deserves credit for the performance he did give, and we're playing guys like Nelson, and we're playing guys like Willick, and while they're good, they're playing in place of guys like Mkhitaryan and Awobi who left, who had experience. We're playing guys like David Luiz, who, while he does give us um, the clown car element, we've lost removing Mustafi from the squad. You know, he's not going to replace the, the sort of solid leadership of, of Koscielny, not to mention that we just put our defenders in bad positions to begin with. So yeah, there's there's a lot there, and and I grant you that. I, I just can't help but think that it looks... It looks disorganized and messy on the pitch because there's a muddled message getting through. And I think it's funny because the breakdown from Adrian Clark, which is a wonderful video you should always watch, the headline of it is, How a Brave and Bullish Attitude Swung the Game. And I can't help but think, wouldn't that be a cool attitude to start with? <laughs> like right from the beginning of the game. Imagine if you were brave and bullish like from kickoff. That would be cool. Let's take a break to get you signed up for The Athletic. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a couple individual performances that were positive. Uh, the comeback, some of that, and then maybe just a little bit on where we go with Emery from here. So we'll take a break. You'll sign up for The Athletic because you'll get a month free and you'd be crazy not to. And then after that, we'll have a, a really good chat about the fun stuff in this game. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world-class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You'll help the pod. And of course, you'll help The Athletic too. But that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football getting world-class writing and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait. They're not chasing ad revenue. They're just trying to write great in-depth articles. They've broken some incredible news. They've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Ketty load to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's $2.50 a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. Go sign up now. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. All right, we're back. Let's dive right back into it. And uh, Paul, I think the, the thing that I want to do just really, really quickly is... Before we get to the comeback, I want to talk about this persistent struggle for us to impose ourselves on games. And if you had to pick a criticism of Emery, do you think it's fair to say that people understand Arsenal struggling defensively? We look at that back line, we realize it's a bit makeshift at the moment. Socrates is bad. Maitland-Niles is scuffling. Kolasinac is mediocre at best. Louise is still finding his place. Like, There's a lot of personnel-related issues for our defensive problems. So it's not great. But it's the inability to sustain an attack. And I think in this game, it could not have been a better sort of control test, you know, like a scientific test, because the Emery game plan produced virtually no shots and virtually no pressure. And the helter-skelter throw everyone in the attacking half game plan produced a winning performance that that absolutely overwhelmed Villa. So for you, is this just a stark contrast of, of Emery's 
problem developing attacking football and and how when the players were able to freestyle late they sort of overcame it uh yeah it's it's emery has been unable really to put together a coherent plan going forward or going backwards which is quite a trick i mean there's not, there's not too many managers um who have got to his level in the game with his reputation and with his pedigree who can't do one or the other uh but weirdly we just seemed uh, i mean we are a pretty impressive puzzle um at this stage and we seem to have gotten the better of him i do think this game is a little bit of a one-off uh in a number of ways obviously when we go down to 10 men that automatically makes it something of an outlier even though if you you still see all the same flaws and you see all our flaws in the first 40 minutes or so before Maitland-Niles is sent off. But it's still, even that's a bit of an outlier in that we just got a hiding from Watford uh, that was chastening for this team. And, you know, Chaka talked about Ben Freyd or whatever you want to call it. I I, I, I wouldn't, ha- I know he got hammered for that. And, uh, and all, all, you can argue that, you know, four or five different ways. But what he was saying was, you know, we don't know what we're doing uh, at Watford in that second half. And they obviously had a come to Jesus meeting after that and kind of got some things sorted out. We went to Frankfurt and uh, you could see all the same flaws, but at least we got into that game and it was fun and it was attacking and we came away with a little bit of a high. But I was not shocked that when this game kicked off, at the Emirates, even though we have our support and even though it's at home, that their midfield three fancy this. I mean, they were really, really good in midfield. Grealish, um, again, um, are are on a roll and looked really on their game. And uh, Marvellous was actually, uh, I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but I think he was pretty good. Um, And they really fancied it and they came at us and like, why not, right? So you can you can see why we might be a little slow out of the blocks on this one because we were about not fucking up, not uh, not exposing ourselves. Uh, we 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 just put our hand in the fire at Watford and got burnt. And you know w- what did Villa have to fear at that point? They they absolutely thought, let's go at them, let's go at their defense, let go let's go bad at go at their corners and the fullbacks and uh, with Grealish and McGinn, I mean, why wouldn't they be like 110% positive and excited about running at our guys? So I wasn't too surprised with how we started. I wasn't even panicking at, at that point. I didn't like it and I was con- obviously concerned, but we went to goal down. I still thought they can't keep this up for the whole game and we'll come back into it. And, uh, I mean, it's a shame that we have these Achilles heels. I don't know if we have enough heels, but we've got, a, we've got enough Achilles here um, of problems all over the pitch and with our, our manager and with our philosophy because it was an absolute roller coaster of a game we all know. It was the most fun or exciting game I've watched in a long time. I watched it with my daughter, and uh, she was just like – her jaw was – was hitting the floor. It, it was just brilliant stuff. It, it, they'd go up a goal, we'd come back. They'd go up a goal, we'd come back. Um, it was heroism. You know, it, it was such a bloody great game uh, in the second half. From, really, from the, we held on till halftime. And in the second half, we went at them. 
um, it doesn't change anything. It changes a couple of things, though. I mean, we saw some performances in these ga- this game, and we'll get, in- get into that, um, that give you a little bit of hope that soon gets extinguished. Um, I do understand why we started the way we did. It's not okay. It's not ideal. But it, it does seem like this is, ju- this is a particular point in time, um, and, uh, and that ex- kind of you can, you can understand the first 40 minutes. What would have happened after that had we not had the sending off? We'll never know, but this was two different games. And fair fucks to us in the second half. I don't know what we can take forward from that. I think there's a couple of individual performances we can take forward from it. And it'll have done us a power of good while we're staying in the game till the manager can work out if he can come up with something or while our fullbacks come back. Maybe it buys us a game or two or three where we do okay and and then something kicks in. Our, full ba- our new fullbacks come back. And uh, or we move to a, a back three, or he, he he pulls the plug on Chaka and starts playing Torreira there. Um, but the I mean the other thing that's extremely exciting is just Saka and what he did. I didn't think Saka was ready for this. I, I thought he was talent. I just didn't think this would be the year for him. And that you know that makes you think, why wouldn't you want Pe- Pepe Saka with Aubameyang through the middle? Um, going forward as often as possible. I mean, we we, we one would, doesn't want to forget or overlook the contribution of Lacazette, but man, that's that's a hell of a front three, uh, giving us a dynamic attack. And Aubameyang mm. not only seemed to step up, uh, step up in his performance, but he was captain-like. Uh, I know there's two takes on it in terms of his frustration and dropping back and and not getting service, but I saw a lot of leadership from Aubameyang, which is not what I associated with the player we got from from BVB, and maybe not even his first year or so with us. Uh, he seemed to be there just to kind of do his Aubameyang thing, but he uh, we've seen for a couple of games now him stepping up and taking a leadership role, and I wish... Uh, maybe that was in the thinking a little earlier because I'd love to derail any Chaka uh, coronation. And it seems to me Aubameyang, it's probably a little early to say it for Aubameyang, but a few more games like that and I'm I'm pretty sure who I wanted to, to have the armband here. Look, I I think the reality is it doesn't matter what players we have. We can't attack because our manager doesn't attack. Like at some point, there's a saying, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Unai Emery has shown us now who he is as a coach. Instead of the excuses, oh, he doesn't have the fullbacks. Oh, well, that was away at Liverpool. Or, oh, you know, it's it, the players retired. Or, oh, there were injuries. Instead of the excuses, believe him. He's shown you who he is. He showed you who he was at PSG, and he's showing you who he is here. He is a conservative manager who does not want to overcommit to attack but he does not know how to get the balance right because as Clive said, and I tend to agree with him, he's panicking a little now. So he's splitting the baby. He's trying to attack, but he's doing it in a way that's leaving us vulnerable because he's not using any pressure. And I think we are a low-tackling team. We don't have tacklers in midfield. We press in a non-concerted individual way, and when players get by our weak-tackling midfielders, they have space to run into, they get it out wide, where they exploit two mediocre fullbacks, and that's where we conceded two goals. The center backs are not good, they're playing terribly, but they are having to cover for 
a lot of space, and so I have some sympathy for them, although I have no sympathy for whatever that was Socrates did where he hugged the leg and pretended like he got hit in the face. And it's just one of those moments where you just say, all right, I'm done with this player. Um, Tim, I think... I do want to interrogate the comeback because the comeback to me is the players saying, fuck this. Let's go Let's go win the game. Now, <clears throat> I'm curious how much you weight the substitutions towards influencing the comeback and how much you literally weight just putting everybody in the attacking half and having 14 shots in the last 20 minutes <laughs> of the game after having six prior to that. So, I mean, the substitutions, I think if we are ever going to give Emery credit, it has to be to the fact that at least every single substitution he made seemed to work and be good. Chambers played well. I thought that was the wrong move when he made it. I'll hold my hand up and say it worked out great. I think Chambers deserves huge credit. And in fact, I think it's kind of a shame that Maitland-Niles started this game after Chambers played really well in Frankfurt. And in a meritocracy, he probably should have kept his spot. But do you do you credit the subs for making the difference or just the finally the willingness to commit bodies into the attack and, and create sustained pressure? A, a little bit of both. So I, I do think the substitutions were significant. Um, I, I think they really helped. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think it kind of started before that. I did kind of think with half an hour to go, um, you know, I didn't think we really looked like we were down to 10 men. I, I did, you know, I, it was obviously all a bit frantic and everything, but I did think, yeah, we. Can, I, I wasn't super confident that we'd keep Villa out. That was the thing. I was thinking, well, we might score, but Villa might score as well. Um, and, you know, look, I, the last couple of games, right, they've been 2-2 with 10 minutes to go and could have gone either way, basically. That, that's the pattern of the last, the last couple of games. But I did kind of get that sense. I thought, no, we could score here. Um, and, I, and I think the substitutions complemented that rather than started it. Um, if that makes sense, I I, I think a, a kind of a couple of things happened here. So I think first of all, you know, the performance of Matteo Genduzzi in terms of driving Arsenal forward and taking that responsibility to get the ball from deep area because the lines, you know, we were saying like the midfield's not compact. There's no real passing lanes there. There's no, you know, there's not a kind of obvious ball progression route there. So I think he decided to go into cheat mode a bit, and just try and dribble through it and and get the ball into the area and and be a bit more direct uh, whether he was asked to do that whether he took it upon himself you know we don't know um you know i i also think that um you know the the moment in which and, and so we built up all this momentum and got the crowd back and everything like that i do think villa sat back more than they should have at 2-1 I understand it but I really think there was a third goal for them there if they really really wanted it um, but also you know when when games are this frantic they turn on quite small moments and you know the Aubameyang free kick to win the game is you know I, I just kind of look at that moment and you know sometimes we can superimpose narrative on things because we want to and because we want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah and because we want to come to grand sleep sweeping conclusions and like look at these moments as iconoclastic when sometimes they're not sometimes it's just a guy spanks the ball in the net and you win but i, ju- I just really looked at that Bamiyang moment as like um that you know the talisman moment the kind of um it reminded me a bit of Fabregas's free kick against Villa about 10 years ago you know when he came on as a I sub remember. and yeah. yeah came on with like one hamstring and went right fuck this I'm gonna win this game and then he went off injured and, again the same game yeah 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it just reminded me of any number of moments I saw from Henri, Van Persie, Fabregas, these kind of talismanic figures who just go, no, 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 like I'm winning this now. Like this is enough. Um, and so I think we have that moment um, to thank for it as well. Because once Callum Chambers got the equaliser, don't get me wrong, I was thinking, right, there's plenty of time for a winner here. But I was still quite grateful to be level. And I was thinking, well, the point is, you know, it, it could have been worse um, at this point. So, I, but at the same time, it, it's weird, isn't it? Because if this game was a kind of isolated incident, I think you give more credit to if not the manager than the team um when a team's kind of playing well and they do this in in fact we had i was reflecting we had a villa game uh when we won the double in 2001-2002 and we were 2-0 down at half time and this was when arsenal were playing really well they were top of the league it was that great team with Perez Vieira Henri etc and we were 2-0 down at half time and it happened you know in that era we we kind of we look back and we pretend it didn't and that we just beat everyone 4 0 every week, but we didn't. Um and then we went and we won that Villa game three two with three goals in the second half and a last minute winner. And and you know, when your team's playing like that, you go, That's character. That's, you know, these guys like fighting for each other and fighting for the manager and everything. But when all of your games are just like basketball and basically, you know, you've had two 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 draws and a three two win and you just think yeah this is just natural variance because all of our games are kind of turning into into chaos then you know there, there's an element which really it's difficult to know how much the manager can take from that what i guess i'd say is that in our last home game we came from two nil down um the problem against watford i think was that we went two nil up and retreated into our shell so the the message as you um, while not so much implied, Elliot, as sprayed on the city <laughs> walls in 10 foot, <laughs> yeah, 10 foot kind of. I'm, just kind call of me Banksy. It's <laughs> like when we take the game to teams and attack, we look quite a bit better than when we try and sit back and contain them. Um, so it's it, it's it's really difficult to tell. I, I guess what you'd say for the manager at this point at half time, I was thinking not so much that they've gone into down tools mode, like I didn't think it was that bad. But I was thinking, you know, this is like this is very much a kind of team who are like almost apologetically thinking, oh, can we just get rid of this guy? <laughs> Whereas in the second half, at least you saw enough to suggest that they haven't got to that stage yet. Now, that's not exactly a massive triumph for Unai Emery at this point, but maybe he'll take what he can get. Like, the players have not down tools, and even if, um, you know, our confirmation biases proved to be true and they went rogue and just took it into their own hands, at least they didn't just throw in the towel. Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I don't even know... If they would have fought for it, I think Matteo Ganduzzi deserves a lot of credit. I think his anger and his natural aggression imprinted itself on the team in the second half. And I think it became, um, you know, it's it's easy to say infectious, but I, I mean, it, it as someone who has a lot of uh, experience with infection, I, I think it was infectious. I think... I think the way he drove to win that that penalty and the way he was getting in people's faces, I think was really relevant. Uh, uh, Paul, you want to add quickly on Matteo? Yeah, there's a guy who uh, sits, was sitting behind the Villa dugout. I don't know if you saw that. I saw the tweet about uh, uh, John Terry. 
Yeah, he was uh, apparently uh, Ganduzi and Terry were basically trash talking each other for for uh, most of the second half, kind of Jordan to the other team's bench, uh, going back and forward, um, and. You know, Ganduzi. You know, th- I think that's who Ganduzi is. I know there was talk about how he shouldn't have done it at Watford, etc. Et I don't think it made any difference at Watford. This is his fuel. He he loves this shit. I think the idea that Ganduzi shouldn't do that, uh, I think that's balls. The, there's some players that can do it. Most players, it, it gets in their own head after a while. I think he runs on this fuel. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, Emery, to his credit, said I, I like his anger at the end of the game. Yeah. Um. And and I do too. I mean, look. This is one of those guys that you know if you played for another team, you'd be calling him a see you next Tuesday every day and you just absolutely hate him to death. But when they're on your team, that's exactly what you want. And I think when you have a listless performance and a team that's about to go out on its shield meekly, a guy like that intercepting a pass, dragging it into the penalty area, taking a penalty, firing up the crowd, getting you back on level terms, and then when it's not going well again, dragging you back into it, taking a shot, getting into it with the opposition keeper, you know, setting up the second goal to Chambers. You know, I I think he just dragged the team back in. Um, and, and ultimately, look, I think you judge a coach by how a team plays when his plan is being executed. And you judge the players how they play when the plan is blown up. This game, the plan got blown up. Down to 10 men, down a goal to newly promoted Villa at home, got to rescue it, and the players freelanced, and they showed what can happen when you create sustained pressure in the attacking half. Clive, I wonder, can this be a watershed moment for for Emery? Can he look at this? Because I got to tell you something. Down a man, down a goal, to Villa, last 20 minutes at home. I think it's the most impressive attacking display we've had under Emery since, since we beat Fulham at home. I don't think I'm being, I don't think I'm being um, my normal hyperbolic self. I think that is the best we've played in the league over a 20 minute period from an attacking standpoint since Fulham. And I wonder if maybe Emery, who is obviously rabid about consuming video, will watch that and something might click into place. I mean, do you think that that last 20 minutes can be instructive for him and for the team? I hope it's a, a message to everybody that what we what we can do when we force people back, and your point earlier about forcing them back, it, I keep saying it earlier, but it starts with the back line. It starts with our where we engage people. I think I also have an engagement problem. We're engaging people too deep. We're allowing them to run too far. We need to engage people much higher up, and that's what's changed in the last quarter of this game. We, were, we had Pepe pressing, we had Willett pressing, we had Torreira pressing. And I think it's all, it all triggered by Granduzzi's bravery to um, to get into the box. And I think, so yeah, I, I just don't think he's quite committing to one thing or the other. See, I don't mind. If you say to me, I'm going to be a transition coach, then pick a transition team. If you're going to be a control possession controlling team, then reduce the space. And pick technicians that can give you technical security. Right? I feel he's just not quite committing appropriately to the strategy which he's trying to implement. And I'm finding myself harder and harder trying to see that. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is a reaction to pressure. We're seeing the three compartments of the team almost playing for themselves. And when we do well, everything connects. Arsenal's biggest weakness for me is our... Other 
disconnect us. If you disconnect us from our talent, which is the top end of the pitch, we become very listless, very weak, and very able to easy to play against. We have fullbacks that don't stop the entry pass. They don't get tight. And they allow people to turn and cross with no pressure. So that's because their first role is not, they don't see themselves as fullbacks. They stand in the hole, but they don't really go and smash people. I guarantee you, I watched one minute. I watched literally watched the first minute of the Wolves under 23 game. And the ball goes out to the right-hand side. And Bellamy is right at the bloke's backside. We transition and Balogun scores in the first minute. It's just your position, his his position, he doesn't allow the entry pass. He's not having that. You're not turning around on me. That's a player that's a fullback, not a player that's playing in midfield. And these things are happening all over the pitch. And what we're seeing, so many highlights of situations where Shaka and Granduzzi are so deep in their box, right next to the centre-backs, which means, guess what? People are getting shots off against us. There's no engagement on the D. And so we have an engagement issue. We have a distances issue. We have we caught between two strategies. And the last two home games, I felt there was only one thing to do. And that was to go and get something back. And then everyone got together, became connected. The distances were smaller. We became more aggressive. And we run both of them teams off their feet in the second half. We haven't worked this out away from home yet. We've got no idea as a club how to approach away games. But at home, at least there's a sense of pride, depending on what's happening in the game, that says, you're not coming out of here with anything, and we're going to take it from you. If we could bottle that up and say, this is how we want to play, quicker, more intense, and start to buy players that can do that, then I think we're on the way back. But at the moment, I think we're caught. We're a little bit of old, slow-footed Arsenal in Ozil, Shaka, maybe even Tobias. I hate to say that, but that's how I'm feeling today. And versus the new, younger, nor my dynamic Arsenal of Granduzzi, Torreira, Saka, Willock, potentially other players moving at the centre midfield if, if, if that can happen. I see a much greater dynamic which is far more the modern game in the Premier League at the moment. And if we can do that, the first time I heard this was from Ken Early on, on Andrew's podcast. He said there is no, there is a shortage of talent in the Premier League, but there's no shortage of sports science. Every team is fit and fast, and they're deploying these players in their, in their team, and they don't care what badge is on the front of our shirts. They're going to run with us. They're as fit as us. It's not like the old days when we had the fittest, fastest, most technical players. Everyone can run. Everyone is strong. Everyone has a pattern. Everyone has the same coaching philosophies. Everyone reads the same coaching manuals. Everyone analyzes each other. You better be good. And our talent, extreme talent in top end of our pitch, and we're not supporting that enough with a basis and a, a framework to give us stability so our front men can play without any fear. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, I, I think that the the question for me at this stage is, you know, it, it's it's hard because I I am sympathetic to the idea that a manager deserves time and he, he should get to learn his players. And he, there's always excuses. There's always opportunities to see why someone should stick around. But much like we're hoping Solskjaer stays at United and much like we're hoping that well, I'm hoping anyway that Lampard stays at Chelsea, whatever the case may be. I got to believe that they're looking at us and hoping that Emery stays 
at Arsenal and seeing that there is talent here that's being underutilized, I just, the question becomes, what what is the upside, right? There is, the one thing we have to agree on, Paul, is that there is a clear window to get into the top four this season, that Chelsea are a big club that are down right now, that United are a massive club that are way the fuck down right now. I saw some statistic that basically said over X number of games, they have relegation form, and it wasn't like four games. It was like 15 or something, legitimately relegation form. Um, They're bad. They're bad right now, and Spurs are scuffling, and for the first time, their metrics suggest that they are not necessarily a top four team. So, yeah, I, I don't... I guess what I would say is we have a window and we have to take advantage of it. So what is the upside with this coach? And for you, Paul, I'm curious, after you see a game like this where we have a, a newly promoted side at home, we've had a little lift beating Frankfurt. You know, we we have a chance to get right uh, from a, a really disappointing result against Watford and we come out really meek, same kind of thing, open and easy to play against, not putting them under enough pressure. And at some point you just say, he, like I said with that quote earlier, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. How much upside is left in sticking with this with this guy? I don't know. I hope he gets a couple of the memos. I, I'm not. I hate when we boo players. I think it's it's a really low thing. On the other hand, it's <laughs> one excellent form of feedback to the manager that if if he wasn't giving it enough consideration, that the the jury has come back on Chaka in terms of what he provides this team. And he's he's got to think long and hard after that. He, he's about to make a very big decision in terms of the captaincy. Uh, and he continues to make a decision on Chaka being a starter in every game. And he's unless he stops that, unless he breaks that uh, way of thinking, um, we will continue to be less than the sum of the parts. And the other thing he has to do is... Um, unless he miraculously decides he's not going to start with Chaka, he's going to switch to to Torreira and try and reconfigure what he's doing at the moment, um, then he's going to need a, a new system anyway. And unless he does something like a switch to the back three or unless our two uh, new fullbacks can come back in and play consistently every game till the rest of the season, we're going to be in this quagmire um, where, uh, as you said, the top four is there to be won and we'll miss out by a few points because we never get the car started and going. If if we could just simplify what we're doing and play solid, good football uh, in terms of our approach and our philosophy, uh, with the talent we have within our team, we're good enough to get top four. And he's got to be able to convince... At the end of the day, the decision you're asking me about is the decision that Edu and Raul have to make. And they, that decision, what the, they've got to be able to sit around the table with him and see, are they getting gobbledygook from him? Does he know where he's trying to get to? Can he talk to them? Uh, can they talk to him? Um, you know when you're having a conversation with somebody where they're just glazed over because the job's too big for them. And you know when you're talking to somebody who has problems uh, but is thinking through it and listening to it and not just saying yes to everything you say or no to everything you say. And it's kind of a decision only they can make. Um, but right now they must they must be looking at him saying, can he get his head around this and make the adjustments? 
unless they're seeing something totally different to us in terms of the performance on the, on the field. Um, but if we keep doing this all the way through the year, well, it's going to be a bloodbath because I don't, I think the players, I don't think the players have down-tooled. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think there's tremendous frustration and... I disagree but only, personally. But yeah, that's, okay. that's fine. I understand, and I know lots of people think what you think. I think right now is come to Jesus time. They're, they'll have a. They've just had a come to Jesus meeting. They'll have a few more. If things don't get better, if they don't see a, a way out of it, then the next stage is starting starting to give up on the manager. But I don't think that's what's going on right now. I think this I, ship. Sp- sorry, go finish your thoughts. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just think it's too early on. I think there's too many players attempting to perform. I think what you see where people are saying, oh, we're downing tools, is just confusion and a lack of belief in what we're doing. Now, at some stage, not too far off in the future, that does turn into effectively downing tools. So I think the ship sprung its first leak when Mesut Ozil put his foot down and played power, played played some some power games with Emery last season, if you remember. Um it was the social media post. Remember that one? The, that whole Tempest in a teapot when he came out? I think it was in the February range, roughly, something about, you know... The Bergkamp quote. Yeah, the <clears throat> Bergkamp quote. That's exactly right. And then, sure enough, shortly after that, Mesut gets brought back into the team and Emery seems undermined, his authority. The team f- finished the season really poorly. You've got some more social media shenanigans with someone saying, why doesn't Lacazette start? And... Someone saying good question and Obama Yang liking the post. You've got Maitland Niles coming out and saying, I'm not a defender. I deserve to play in my regular spot. Everybody else gets to. You have, you know, all these little data points. Kashelny wanting out, you know, so bad that he's willing to destroy his legacy. Um, you know, Mesodozo getting frozen out again. And, and then you have this game where the team just limps through it and, and it totally lifeless performance. Obama Yang's body language against Watford and again in this game. And I I think that the team got angry and, and Ganduzi injected a little bit of, of belief and life into them and they fought back and they did win it. But they won it, I think, in defiance of the plan, not in in following the plan. And so I just Downing Tools is a tough one because I don't I think there's probably shades of downing tools. I mean you really saw it when Chelsea downed tools against Jose and they were down in twelfth place or whatever the hell it was. Um I mean that's the the real version. But then you also had, what, Saka after the Frankfurt game says, I don't really understand, do I? So I mostly listen to Freddie. There's the leak that came out. What was it? Alan Smith who came out and said some of the players don't understand the instructions they're being given. The ship is springing leaks. And if this is what we're hearing, I always think of this stuff like an iceberg. They say the same is true of alcoholism, right? Like it's an iceberg. Whatever you see on the surface, there's a lot more going on below the surface. If we're starting to see the little social media posts and the Alan Smith quote coming out and Gunner Blog was briefed with some stuff and, and you know, the comments from Maitland Niles and there's just these little leaks springing. I think what's going on below the surface might be a lot worse. Tim, can we sort of um, clean this up with some of the incidents in the game just real quick? Sure. And actually, before we do that, do you, do you think there's any merit to what I'm saying or that I'm, I'm sort of wish casting what I no, want no, no, to no. believe into what's actually happening? Not at all. Not at all. No, there are there are a lot. You know, there's no like open mutiny. Yet. I I I completely agree with Paul that it's we're not at mutiny stage yet. But there there are some. Um, even if they're distant, there are some alarm alarm bells certainly. Yeah. Okay. And and, and look, I, I I am of the opinion that had we lost to Villa, I think it could have been his last game. I 
I don't know. I, I have this, the, the, the vote of confidence thing is real. When Vinay came out and gave him the vote of confidence, and it wasn't Raul giving him the vote of confidence, by the way, like, that's, that's usually a bad sign because it means they know that he needs it. Uh, and you and I touched on that earlier, Tim. But so, all right, a couple, couple things I want to pick out of here. First of all, the, the Maitland-Niles second yellow. I actually think it's a second yellow. I know a lot of people disagree. Do you have a perspective on it? Um, I So I didn't quite think it was. I, I think it was a bit harsh, but I completely understand why people do. I'd, I, like, I don't have a strong objection to that. I don't think I'd have done it, but I, I get it. I don't think it's scandalous. I, I think the reason for me is he's steaming in and goes to ground right at a, at a pretty high rate of speed and kind of swings the leg through. He does get the ball. His trailing leg takes the man. I think it's close, but I guess my argument is if you're on a yellow and that's the way you're going to tackle, you're inviting it. Um, yeah, I, I actually, my, my read of why his leg was up was actually he was trying to take his leg away so that he didn't like take the guy out. So like and once you're on the ground, like sliding, you can't stop yourself doing that. I, my read on it was, you know, he stuck his leg up because he was trying not to hit the other guy, if that makes sense. And he had a choice between having his studs way up in the air and not hitting the guy or hitting the guy. And uh, he probably would have got a second yellow either way. I think we can both agree that he definitely gave the referee a decision to make, which you can't, yeah, yeah. You can't be doing there. Um, another thing I want to pick out, you know, le- leadership comes in a lot of flavors. Uh, Aubameyang hitting that that free kick with disdain uh, is one of them. By the way, uh, Paul's going to take off. So Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Ooh. Ooh. Um, we're going to be wrapping up here momentarily anyway. But so uh, I think another form of leadership is understanding what the team needs to get back on track. And one of the things the team needed is Pepe to get his confidence up. And, and I think that Aubameyang giving Pepe the penalty... He could be looked at two ways. People who really want to be cynical could say that Aubameyang's kind of scared of it because he missed a key one against Spurs. I don't buy that at all. I don't think that's in his head the slightest bit. I think he knows that Pepe needed a goal and he gave it to him. How do you feel about that incident? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. And Aubameyang, Aubameyang took a penalty against Man United straight after that, uh, straight after that Spurs <laughs> oh, yeah, one. Right. I don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think that that was a concern for him. I. And, and I think you're right. I think like, um, you know, Pepe probably needed the goal on, on balance and, and Aubameyang has, has shown himself to be pretty selfless in that respect. I I maybe don't consider it quite the act of charity everyone else does because I, I think probably because it hasn't, it didn't happen at Arsenal. But Pepe's a really, really good penalty taker. Yeah, he took and if tons he of them last season, yeah. Yeah, if he wasn't our first choice from the start, I kind of want to know why because I think... You know, I think he's our best penalty taker. Um, so you Lacazette know, I, would have a word, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like it wasn't like he gave it to like this kind of. It wasn't you know if he'd given it to like Saka if he'd still been on the pitch <laughs> or something then yeah that's probably like a bit of an act of charity but this is like a guy who has a really really good conversion rate off of a lot of penalties so mm. you know fine with me. I I don't think it was just about. Let's get him a goal. I think it was, you know, yeah, this guy can take penalties. Fair enough. Yeah, and and to be fair, I mean, I think look at the reaction after the way he puts his arm around Pepe. It's, you know, he's wearing the armband in that moment. I think, I just think, while well, you're right, he gave it to a guy who's very good at it and very experienced and and is arguably the better penalty taker. There's definitely an understanding. I think the arm roll over the shoulder, the way he celebrates it with him, at mm. least reflects a recognition that this is a player who could just use a goal to to get that 
stigma off his back of, oh, he hasn't scored for mm-hmm. Arsenal. And, uh, you know, it could go a long way to making a difference. We'll see. I guess the, the last thing then, Clive, that I just want to touch on, because I don't want it to get swept under the rug, is the performance of, of Callum Chambers. He had a number of neat little moments in this game. Um, and he takes his goal brilliantly. Really, really brilliantly. Um, he had a couple really excellent pieces of skill, and and he takes the goal well. And I think, if nothing else, given the scuffles that Maitland-Niles is having, and obviously he's he's going to miss the League Cup game and maybe beyond, depending on whether he's injured. Or I haven't seen anything on that. I think Chambers has at least put himself in the frame to be one of the two center backs or the fullback until Bellerin's, uh, Bellerin's back, certainly, based on the fact that he stepped up when he was needed. He played well in Frankfurt. He played well in this game. It's an area where we're struggling. There has to be a meritocracy. I mean, do you feel the same way? I know he's a player. I, I don't know that I've rated him that much. All right, you know, fair play. I, I, I don't know that you I, haven't I, either. I but, okay, so so what's I your haven't. feeling? So I fame I famously called him a, a souffle, mm-hmm. and um, but what I will say is, you know, I, I'm learning uh, about judging players. I tend to um, not focus much on individuals. I used to judge Aaron Ramsey in a very negative way, and then I started to. I thought to myself, you know what? If people like Tim can see uh, a different side of him, I can try to see the same. And what I liked about Ramsey towards the end was the persistence and his personality and what he tried to be. And I find myself thinking the same about Callum Chambers. He's been sent out on loan twice. Yeah, he's persistent and he wants to be an Arsenal footballer. And from pre-season to the first game at Newcastle, he played much better than he's played from in, in the past, in my opinion. In the Frankfurt game, he was good. In this game, uh, I just liked what he tried to be. I, I'm, I will say I'm a coach, right? So I'm always looking at intention to play. His intent to play and put himself into areas to benefit the team, even though he may not always benefit himself, was fantastic. His bravery to receive the ball was fantastic. I don't care about mistakes per se. I care about people who hide. And I don't like people that hide and don't show up on the key moments. You judge people in adversity. And I thought in adversity in this game, he ran himself to death. He pushed people back. Villa didn't just fall back. We pushed them back. And that started with much more aggressive intent from people like Chambers and Kalashnik late on. And the, the extra pressing players that came on. I find myself wishing we had, you know, from a souffle, I find myself wishing we had three Callum Chamberses. Because right now, I want to play centre-back. Right now, I don't mind him at full-back. But right now, I like the option of him as being a centre-midfielder. And because I think he's got the passing range, I think he's got the psychology, I think he'll give us a lot of stability. So if it's not three at the back, play a centre-back in front and somebody that can really play and hold. Other teams do it. Why can't we do it? It's a commitment to defence. Let's not talk about it. Let's think about doing something different. We can't say we're committed to this and put people that are absolutely not suited to it. Maybe Shaka can be a second player in midfield, but he can't be that first one that we rely on to be the um, to shut the back door because his psychology just does not allow him to do it. It doesn't allow him to do it consistently because he wants to go and help everybody else, and that means you're not where you need to be for the team. And for some of my potentially do that. So we need to think about that. And I'm so pleased that somebody that's persistent to want to be here and build his career. And I've I, I got to say, I'm looking forward to seeing his next game. I really am. And more people like that, the better. Yeah, well said. I, I think he he is a player who has an opening right now to play a lot because 
you know, holding will be in and out. Maitland Niles looks like he's certainly on the way out at fullback at least, but Bellerin won't be able to play every game coming back from this extent of injury. The center backs have made themselves look like clowns and certainly have given themselves no reason to believe they should both get to start every game. So he's a player that's stepping up and and he has an opportunity and good for him for taking it. Um, Tim, we don't have to get into the the trip to Old Trafford because we'll have a post-League Cup pod where I think we'll probably focus on that more than the League Cup just for interest's sake. But as we look forward, you know, it's easy to be frustrated with this game because we played like shit against a pretty mediocre team at home for a long stretch and then had to rescue it, and we did. But in the context of our season, can we just have a moment to celebrate how important this was with Chelsea losing Mm. and Spurs losing and United losing and losing Rashford and really looking like they're in a tailspin and this window being open to us? Dropping even two points, let alone three, at home to Villa would have been a crushing blow to the opportunity presented to us. Winning this game flips that right on its head and now has us looking, again, once again, I think, to be favorites, If you know, depending on whether Emery keeps the shackles on us or not. So can we just have maybe a moment to, to sort of celebrate how important this win is in the context of what's happening around us? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, the, you know, this is the fatalism of football fans, right? But just before uh, we left the pub to go to the game, um, you know, we always say this kind of thing. It's like, right, Chelsea, Man U and Spurs have all lost. Well, actually, Chelsea hadn't lost at that point, but we, we were pretty sure they would. And it's like, they've all lost. So, you know what Arsenal are going to do, right? And, uh, and and sometimes in that respect, if you're looking to build like belief and momentum, sometimes this type of result is perhaps more um, more valuable than kind of just like stumbling to a one or two nil win um, in terms of getting that momentum and particularly, like you say, going to Old Trafford um, on Monday night. Um, so, yeah, hugely important because I was sitting there thinking, you know, particularly during the first half where I, I just thought we would die. I was thinking, oh, my God, like maybe maybe my preseason protestations about how like, you know, the uh, the teams from third to six aren't as bad as everyone says. You know, maybe we're all going to finish outside the top six. Um, you know, maybe like West Ham, Leicester are, are, are both going to get in there or something. But um, yeah, like just just hugely important in that respect. And and it's, you know, it's still early, um, obviously. But, you know, when you look at the league table right now, like Chelsea are 11th, I think, at the moment. And uh, which is weird because there seems to be quite a lot of good feeling around them at the moment just because they're doing this kind of youth thing, um, even though they're probably overdoing it. Um, and again, I think Frank Lampard's just trying to make some points that don't need to be made um, in doing this. Like he's leaving but some we're, good players out. We're doing a youth thing too, Tim, and no one's looking yeah. in the same sort of light. We're yeah. playing just as many young players, just as many academy graduates, but no one's looking at us in the same positive light. To be fair, Clive, it's because we're so boring. No one wants to pay attention to us, period. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, but like the whole, like, you know, the Frank Lampard thing, it's got, it's got that kind of, you know, if we were managed by like, I don't know, Tony Adams right now, it, it, you're right, Clive. It would be very much like you know, um, it, it would be looked at very, very differently. Yeah, I mean, um, to be fair, they've got a transfer ban, so congratulations to them for having to play youth because their squad's gutted. Meanwhile, we're throwing Willock and Nelson and Saka and Chambers yeah. and Maitland Niles and all these academy players and and Gendouzi, yeah. who's twenty out there, and everybody's like, "Look at Project Youth at Chelsea," and, and I'm like, "Please fucking shut and up." And like, <laughs> and and Chelsea should have been doing that years ago yeah. anyway. Yeah. Like, why has it taken them so long to work out that Mason Mount is better than like Ross Barkley and 
Danny Drinkwater. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, that, why did that? Why did they need a transfer ban to work out that they've got like the be- probably the best youth team in Europe? Like, you know, it's 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 amazing to me that they haven't tried to lean into that more than they have. You know, I'm not I'm not saying like, you know, look, replacing Hazard with Pulisic at this moment in time not ideal. You know, Pulisic might get to that level, but you know that that's probably not what they want to happen but yeah like loads of these youth players they've got are far better than a lot of the muck they've been spending tens of millions on and it's the same for us as well like you know like you know Saka for free or Lucas Perez for for 17 million um please please you know (laughs) Willock for free or Mohamed Elneny for 10 million I mean it's it's not rocket science it's like it's good business and it's good to see that that Arsenal are kind of doing that but just just to kind of go back to your point yeah I I think that's hugely important and um you know with I I'm interested in this man new game because I think now we will really like I think it's undeniable that we've got some kind of mental block going to Old Trafford. Now we're about to see how big that mental block really is because there has never been a better opportunity to get rid of it. They have presumably no Rashford, no Pogba, no Martial, Lukaku's scoring goals in Italy. Um, I mean, it's, it's disaster for them, and the window is open, and the question is, will Emery climb through it and steal the pie? The, the Manchester United pie from the old Trafford windowsill. Um, I think we can just about leave it there. That feels like a good stopping point. We'll, uh, we'll of course, be doing a post-League Cup podcast, and uh, we'll have the Schadenfreude pod as well. So a lot of good stuff. That'll be for patrons uh, coming up. And, of course, if you do want to sign up for The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, you get a month free, and every month it's it's two fifty. I mean, it helps us. helps us get great great guests on the pod, which we'll, uh, we'll be looking forward to. And so that's really all there is to it. Look, I, I mean, I realize this is sort of a down tone for a game where we won. And as I said, sort of jokingly at the beginning, this is not the Arsenal Vision Pollyanna podcast. I think um, everybody prefers to be happy than sad, but you have to analyze the game that was put in front of you. And when Arsenal get themselves in that position at home to Aston Villa, you have to address it. I think the fact that we finished the game out shooting them 14-2 to two shows you there's something there. You know, there is something there. And so uh, we'll see if that's something that Emery can latch on to, kind of understand how it came about and reproduce it. Um, and we'll talk about that after the after the League Cup match in that, in that pod, which we'll probably use as a Manchester United preview pod. So we'll probably blend those two together because I don't know how much we're going to want to spend on the League Cup. But that'll be organic. And we'll figure it out as it goes. Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Paul's gone already. Scott will be back in a little bit. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner gives five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comments. We do love you. We, we really appreciate you putting up with us. I know that these are sort of tricky times, right? Because um, there, there's a lot to question and a lot to critique, but we don't want to let that become the only part of the debate. So uh, hopefully we're straddling that line reasonably well, or at least the others are, while I just live in my doom, doomy prison that I that I exist in. In any event, as I mentioned, we do love you. Uh, we will have a lot more for you this week, and I am going to stretch as I try to remember who we are playing in the League Cup. I think it's Forrest. Is it Forrest? Yeah. It's Forrest. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Forrest, no. Forrest, no.